Well, today we're going to conclude our series of messages titled Seven, which has been talking about the seven churches uh, that, that Jesus spoke to in the book of Revelation. Now, I've mentioned on numerous occasions my, my formative years. For about the last, this past week was my dad's birthday, and my dad has been uh, in, you know, he's been gone now for a number of years, and, but every, every April 3rd, I reflect upon my father and just think a little bit about him, and I've made notes in my, um, in my devotional schedule, it always comes up, so I'd always see it and just remind me, and I just give God thanks for his life and investment in me over the years. So probably the last 40 years or so of his ministry he was in ministry about 60 years, and so it was really fun to see all that God did over that 60-year period, but about the last 40 years, he was very focused on end times event, the events. That was really kind of the passion of his, of his ministry, and as a kid, when I would grow up, some of it I'd get excited about, some would be fun to listen to, and others I'd just get a little unnerved, I guess. It would be a little overwhelming at times, not fully understanding or comprehending everything. And it's interesting to me, when you begin to talk about end-time events, there's a tremendous amount of interest out there. If you were to just do two things, if you did a Google search on this word, the word rapture, just that word, rapture. Now, there are some that don't connect theologically, and we'll talk about that in just a second, but you're going to pick up about 41 million different hits on the word rapture. So it tells me there's a lot of interest about it. Now, the rapture of the church, there, as I said, there are things that aren't theologically based, but the rapture of the church, the word rapture means caught up or taken away. And what does that exactly mean theologically? It's the moment when Christ followers It's the moment when Christ followers are taken up to meet Jesus in in the air as he comes again. And And the reality is, at that point, some things begin to happen. It puts things into motion. Uh, We hear of a thing called the tribulation, which is the wrath of God being poured out upon the earth. There are significant changes, the Antichrist. This is when this all comes into play. Now, the second the second phrase is the second coming of Christ. Now, there's a distinction between the two, and I'll explain that just very briefly this morning. But the second coming of Christ, if you do the same thing, if you do a Google search on that and spell out the word second, you're going to have 131 million hits. There's a lot of interest about this. The second coming of Christ is really important to understand. It's distinguished from the rapture, and it comes at the end of the tribulation period of about seven years. And then Jesus comes to this earth and sets up an earthly kingdom for a thousand years where he rules, he reigns, and then after that is, the, is what is called the great white throne judgment. So there are these incredible sequence, sequences of events that are yet to come upon this earth. And, and you, begin to, you begin to think about this and how does it all apply to me? What does it mean to me? It is a very relevant and practical conversation. What is so significant about the series of messages that we have just, are concluding today, is each of these churches in Revelation, there's a very practical message that that Jesus gives to them. When chapter number three ends and chapter four begins in the book of Revelation, this is where many of us just stop reading the book of Revelation. We'll read chapters one, two, and three because we kind of get it. But boy, once it gets beyond that, we go, I'm done. 
I can't figure this out. There's all kinds of images. There's numbers beyond, I, I don't understand. There are beasts. There are plagues. There are, I mean, what in the world? I can't figure it out. So we stop. I get that. I mean, there is, there, there's a mystery connected to, to the book of Revelation. And many of us want nothing to, we just want nothing to do with it. But the reality is there are some really powerful things that take place through this, the remainder of this book. And just consider this. It's been said that there are as, there are as many interpretations of, the, of Revelation as there are Christians. Okay. This book, filled with vivid, highly symbolic imagery, now listen to this, has been used, has been used to prove that two of Oliver Cromwell's guards were the end-time witnesses of Revelation 11. Adolf Hitler was the Antichrist of Revelation 13. That Iraq is the final Babylon of Revelation 18. And quite a few people lock onto their, their own unique interpretations dogmatically and get quite white under the collar, white hot under the collar with those, with those who disagree with them. So some people give up reading Revelation entirely, but this is a mistake. There is much Christians can agree on, much that is clear in the big picture, if not in detail. Listen to this carefully. Even the most skeptical among us can see that this world cannot last much longer, but is headed to a terrific climax. Most Christians agree that Christ will one day return, perhaps in our lifetime, set up his kingdom on earth and reward the righteous and punish the wicked. It is that one phrase that I want you to just capture for a moment. Even the most skeptical among us can see that this world can't last much longer. And one of the things that has been so, so very obvious as we have studied these seven churches, there is a connection between what Jesus said to them in the first century to our lives today. There has been an incredible call to repentance. And I'm not just talking about Crossroads Church. This is a general, a general call when you talk about so significant, these significant churches. Five out of the seven of them are called to repentance. One of them has absolutely no commendation from Christ. There are present realities in each of these churches that we should take note, remember, and apply. Very briefly, let me go through just a review of these seven churches. So uh, there's not in your notes. At the end of it, as I said last week, you may want to take a, a screenshot of this if you just want to remember it. The first is Ephesus. The priority of love in Ephesus was forsaken, and the call was to rekindle a devotion to God. Smyrna was a suffering church. And as a believer, we need to realize that suffering is going to happen, and it's just a reality, but don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Pergamum, a doctrinal compromise. They had, just, they, they had just compromised what they believed, and it's unacceptable. And so the challenge is to know and to grow your faith. Thyatira was in moral compromise. So here you had one church that was dealing with a, a doctrinal compromise, what they believe. Another church was dealing with moral compromise, and this is inside the church inside the church, and moral compromise is unacceptable. And we need to make Christ's standard of purity our own. Sardis was a, was a church that had dead faith. They were dead faith. They had dead faith. 
And it's simply the, the call is it's time to wake up. Bring that faith to life once again. Philadelphia. God provides opportunities. This is the church of the open door. And in fact, in Philadelphia, it was said that I'm going to open a door that no one can shut. Only I can open it. Only I can shut it. It's an opportunity. Let's do something about the opportunities that are presented to us. And then last week, we talked about Laodicea. Laodicea, the lukewarm church. That lukewarmness sickens Jesus. And it's time for us to get serious with God. Those are the messages to these seven churches. So now if you were to fast forward through the book of Revelation and you walk your way all the way through to chapter 22, this is what you're going to read in chapter 22 and verses 12 and 13. Look, and this is Jesus speaking, look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus declares very clearly. Now, I want you to just understand how this might all work. At the, Let's just pick one of the churches. At the church at Pergamum, they read this letter and they hear the specifics to the church of which they attend. And then they continue to read the letter through the next 20 or so chapters. And they get to the end of this incredible letter that John has written to them, communicated from Jesus, and they read these words. Look, I am coming soon. Jesus is saying, what I have said, take note of what I have said, make the changes because time is coming to a close. I am coming again. When we, and I'll just even make it even more personal, when I consider these words in light of what I've read already from about the seven churches, uh, it's humbling. It's sobering. When, when I think about even the things that are happening around our world today, the suffering church, I don't know if you, if you have seen any of the news from the continent of Africa where literally hundreds of followers of Christ have been murdered, killed, and literally, and literally the press has been absolutely silent on what has happened. Our brothers and sisters in Jesus have lost their lives because of their faith. The suffering church is a reality. I, I, I'm, I'm sad to say that doctrinal and moral compromise are a reality. I, I'm sorry to say that the lukewarm church is a reality, but I'm also happy to say that there are churches with open doors that Jesus is doing great things, and I pray that Crossroads Church will always be that church of an open door. That God is open that no one can shut. There are responsibilities that we have. But I take all of that into account and I say, okay, Lord, you're coming soon. You say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is written like 2,000 years ago and Jesus is saying, I'm coming soon. That's 2,000 years. That's not soon. What, what do you mean? Remember, timing in God's understanding is not like ours. It's just not like ours. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. So you continue on in the chapter 22, and then you come to this great, great verse. We sang about it even just a moment ago. Even so, come. Revelation 22, 20 says, So Lord Jesus, please come soon. 
Think about that for a moment. Think about the church that's suffering. Wouldn't they be praying this prayer? Please, Jesus, come. Come soon. It's not that we're afraid, but we're ready. We're ready to move from this life to the next life. And I want to say to all of us this morning, and I want to say to those who may be joining us by way of the live stream this morning, welcome to Crossroads Church. I want you to understand something this morning, and it's the title of our message. This is not about escapology. It is not about running from the fray of life. It is not about the fear of what is here so that we can just get away from it, as some might interpret and say, you know, all you Christians want to do is just run away from No, that's not what this is. Understand, it is a prayer that we should pray, even so, come, Lord Jesus, we are ready for you to come. We are ready for for the next season of our faith. And it's the hope that we share as followers of Jesus. And we're going to talk about that a little while this morning. The book of Titus, chapter number 2. So you can look at with me or you can turn in your Bibles or the electronic version that you have. It's in your programs for you. Titus, chapter number 2, beginning at verse number 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our God, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Father, I pray you bless your word, our time together in your name. Amen. Three things we want to talk about this morning. The first is this. And, and before, I, before I say what these three things are, I want you to hear this. The coming of Christ is not something that, again, we look at it as the great escape, that we're running away from things, but rather there is something that I believe within, incumbent within the the second coming of Christ that should produce in us, that should produce in us the ability to live a thriving and victorious life while we wait for the coming of the Lord. It is those, it is this that I want you to capture. We have a period of time between now and whenever Jesus comes. How are we going to live our life between now and that moment? How do we have a victorious and thriving life? Three things. Number one is to live with gratitude. It's to live with gratitude. When you look at what the Apostle Paul says, he talks about there's, a, there's salvation that is offered to all people. Now, every November, we celebrate Thanksgiving. And I know this past year, I probably said what I'm going to say now. And I'll probably say it again next year. I love Thanksgiving, it's my favorite holiday, and we should be thankful all year long. And everybody said a big, yeah, amen. We, yeah, we all get that. We all get that. And I've said that every Thanksgiving for as long as I've had ever an opportunity to speak on a Thanksgiving weekend. Now, I'm thankful for all of the things that God gives me. I, I am blessed beyond words. And we all are living where we live. We're blessed in amazing ways. We have a lot of reason to be thankful. In fact, James would say it this way, James 1.17, every good action and every perfect gift 
is from God. So everything that we have, everything that we possess, it all comes from God. We need to be grateful, right? We need to be people of gratitude. But when I, when I begin to look at all of the things that I have, I'm thankful for them. But the thing that I am most grateful for is that Jesus Christ has saved me. That I am a follower of Christ. And by his sacrifice, his death, his suffering, his resurrection, I am saved. And understand, that's exactly what Paul is saying. He talks about the grace of God has appeared. Now, grace has always, God's grace has always been in force, but he says the grace of God has appeared. What does that mean? It means that grace is a person. Grace is now in place. It's Christ himself. You know, it, as, as having appeared, salvation is now offered to all people. You see, grace was always in force. God's grace was always there. But it was through a process and through a nation only. But now because grace has appeared in a person, salvation is offered to all people. We should be grateful for the grace of God has appeared to us and we have been saved by his grace. Hallelujah. John 3.16, you should know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but what? Have eternal life. Acts 2.21, and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. 2 Corinthians 9.15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Can I just stop on that for a moment? Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. There is no way that we can truly express our gratitude for what God has done. He has saved you. You are new. You are free. You will have an eternal life because of Christ. We need to be thankful that the grace of God has appeared to us and offered salvation to all men. Amen? Amen. We need to be thankful for what he has done in us. So we need to live with gratitude. It's not just gratitude for the stuff. It's gratitude for Christ and what Christ has done in us. That's how Paul starts. How do we live a victorious life in between now and when Christ comes? We live with gratitude. Second thing that we do is we, we live with character. We live with character. And when you begin, when you go back and revisit the seven churches, you see that Jesus is confronting them on character issues. And we need to live with character. Now, it's interesting. Paul says, this grace that has appeared to all men has done something. It, it, and this is really important. Grace teaches us. The first thing it does, it teaches us to say yes. or says no. It teaches us to say no. In fact, you know... If I look back over my lifetime, and all of us, I think, do that a bit. We reflect upon life, and this, I think just the other night, I happened to pull out a couple of, one of my acquaintances from high school, I got notification that he passed away, and so I'm just trying to make connection as to remember him, remembering him, what he looked like in high school, and so I'm back into my high school yearbook, and I go, oh yeah, I remember, I remember Joe, I remember Joe. And it's, it's sad, you know, you just, oh gosh, another, another friend, another friend. But I just began to reflect on some of my high school experiences. And as I think back over, over life, over my life, you know, I have a lot of regrets. Can we, just, can we just for a moment be honest about that? I have a regret I didn't play football in high school. I regret that. I regret that 
I didn't buy stock in Krispy Kreme before they split. Just being honest. You know, I also regret not joining the National Guard when I got into ministry out of college. Because I always felt like it was something I needed to do was to serve my country in the military. And I was trying to figure out how to do it and, and pursue ministry. And chaplaincy wasn't the thing that felt God was leading me towards. And I have regretted it ever since. Because it would have been a way I could have served in the country I love so much. I regret not just some of those things. I regret some of the emotional responses that I've made. I regret some angry moments. I regret some words I should never have said. I regret some actions that I did that I never should have done. I regret not nurturing certain relationships that I should have nurtured. You, you see, all of us have regrets at some place. What I love about what Paul says to Titus, he says, grace says no. It says, in fact, I love this, it teaches us to say no. It's not something that's just immediately implanted on us, it teaches us. There is a training moment. We have to learn through this process, and it teaches us it teaches us to say no to, ready, ungodliness and worldly passions. Now, that's a, those are two pretty broad terms. You can fit just about everything into those two words or two phrases. You see, as a result, when we are taught, when we understand that grace says no, I believe what happens is our regrets are minimized. Because we have learned by grace to say no to certain things within our life. The, the temptations of our life, the actions, the thoughts. When we begin to entertain a thought of anger, wait a minute, grace says, no, 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 no. I'm not going to be mastered by that. I'm not going to let that take control. Therefore, when we come out of that, we have no regret. Grace teaches us to say no. Simply, everything that is contrary to all things godly, and even the prevailing culture that is so so present, that, that which is accepted. Here what, here's what we need to understand. The reality is ungodliness, ungodliness results in regret. But, gre but grace teaches us to say no. Amen. Hebrews 12, 15, see to it that no one misses the grace. I love that phrase. No one misses the greatest grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. When we're taught to say, because grace says no, we're not going to miss the grace of God. The second thing that it does is grace says yes. It says no, and then it says yes. You see, the grace that teaches us or trains us has a positive side. And the grace that teaches us, teaches us how to, ready for this, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in Christ Jesus. That's what it teaches us to do. I, I love that. In fact, here's how Peter would say it. 2 Peter 3 says, but the day of the Lord, and what is so significant is that he is speaking to the day of the Lord, the return of Christ. So look at how he says it. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, and, and the elements will be destroyed by fire and earth, and the earth and everything, everything done in it will be laid bare. Okay, so there's what's happening. That's what's coming. The climax, the terrific climax is coming. And then he says this, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? There's the question. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. 
do you see there is a, there is a character here. There is something that, that we need to develop within our lives. So understand, we live with character. Grace says, teaches us to say no. Grace teaches us to say yes. And I love not everything that, that John MacArthur says do I, do I enjoy. I will just be honest, but there are some things I absolutely do enjoy. And I want to read you a phrase. He said, godly character is not the result of good intentions, wishful thinking, or some mystical zap, or even sheer Bible knowledge. Look at this. It is developed through the self-disciplined application of God's word at its very basic level, enabled and empowered of God's spirit. And I say, amen. Amen. We have to develop this. We are taught, we are trained to say that grace says yes, and it results in self-control, upright, and godly lives. So how might we live out grace, saying no and saying yes? I want to give you four things. The first is this. We need to remain connected. We need to remain connected to Jesus. We cannot expect to to live a a godly, upright, self-controlled life. We cannot expect to not have regrets if we stay disconnected from Christ. We must remain connected. Jesus would say it this way. Remain in me, John 15 and verse 4, and I will remain in you. For a branch, and I love this, for a branch cannot produce fruit if it's severed from the vine. You're not going to produce a godly, upright, self-controlled life when you're separate from Christ himself. It's not going to happen. There has to be a connection to Jesus. You cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. The second thing is that we need to be dedicated to God's word. Dedicated to God's word. We need to remain connected to Jesus, be dedicated to God's word. Romans 15 and verse number 4 says, "Whatever Whatever was written beforehand is meant to instruct us how to live. The scriptures impart to us encouragement and inspiration so that we can live in hope and endure all things. We need to be dedicated to God's word. Back to what what John MacArthur said. It's developed through the self-disciplined application of God's word at a very basic level. Number three, we need to remain committed to repentance. And I include this very, very intentionally. As I said a a little bit ago, in in the seven churches that we talked about from the book of Revelation, chapters two and three, five of the seven churches, so let me say it this way, the majority of of those to whom Jesus spoke, he called them to repent. So I'm just going to make this as applicable as I can possibly make it. The majority of us as the church of Jesus Christ are called to repentance. And that is not a bad or negative thing. That is the most positive place that any of us can ever be. To fall on our face before God and repent. To turn from and to turn towards him positive. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 10 says, God designed us to feel remorse over sin in order to produce repentance that leads to victory. Hallelujah. That's what I want. You want to live a victorious and thriving life? We have to remain committed to repentance. And number four is to be guided, to be guided by the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5 verse 16, so I say, Paul says, So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. You say, well, Pastor Gary, how does that all all flesh out? How do I remain guided by the Spirit? It is a yielding. 
to the being connected to Jesus. It is being dedicated to the Word of God. It is being committed to repentance. When those three things are put into place, something's going to happen. Your spirit and my spirit are going to turn towards the Spirit of God, and you are going to be prompted and directed and guided by His Spirit. Allow that to happen. Make a, a, a concerted effort every day to say, God, lead my life today. Direct my life. And as we do that, we are promised that if we live by the Spirit, we are not going, we're not going to do the things that are contrary to godliness. So until Jesus returns, let us be taught by grace and live with character. And number three, live with patience. Live with patience. So these three things, one more time. We need to live with gratitude, live with character, and live with patience. Now, let me ask you a rhetorical question. <clears throat> now, a rhetorical question by its very nature doesn't demand, doesn't demand an answer. So I'm just going to ask this question, so just think about it. So, would you consider yourself a patient person? Would you consider yourself a patient person? Mothers and fathers of toddlers, would you consider yourself a patient person? Do you consider yourself a patient person when you're sitting in line at Costco to get gas? Do you consider yourself a patient person at the Department of Motor Vehicles? Yeah, we're all laughing because we all know, no, 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 okay, good night. What are you trying to say? I'm not patient? I'm not going to say that for anybody in the room. I'm just going to say it's a rhetorical question. We need to think about what does it mean to be patient to us? These things are not catastrophic. I mean, they're not, they're not world-changing, life-altering. Unless we have a, like a bad attitude out of it all, then we get back into that whole self, no self-control thing. And that's not what, uh, necessarily what I'm speaking. But think, but think of patience in light of those who we've just talked about in these seven churches. They're dealing with things that you and I, for the most part, aren't really dealing with. There are some very intense things. And Jesus has told them on more than one occasion to hold on and to overcome and to be victorious. So in essence, he's saying, do all this, there's patience required. We're, we're all going to live life in a way that's going to need patience, especially as in regards to our faith. So it's important to this, when you add to what they're experiencing, and, and Jesus called for them to be patient, Jesus says, then at the end of the book, he says, I'm coming soon. In the middle of all of this stuff, he says, I'm coming soon. It sounds really good. But the truth is, and I just want you to look at this phrase, the truth is, we do not know when Jesus will return. Now, I'm going to say that again for effect. We do not know when Jesus will return. Period. End of story. And I'll just say this. We need to stop trying to figure it out. You say, boy, you just got radical. Really? Yeah, we need to stop it. Let me, let me tell you why. Many have attempted to predict it, and I want you to look at the slide on the screen. I have these two little precious books in my library. I covet them. One of them says 88 reasons why the rapture will happen in 1988. I want to just inform everyone here, this is 2019. Oops. Now, because this particular person missed 1988, they recalculated. 
And they came up with 1989, but not to just focus in on 1989. As you can see, there is 1989, 90, 91, 92, 93. Good gracious. No one knows the day or hour not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. One more time, the truth is we do not know when Jesus will return. What part of that don't we understand? We keep trying to figure it out. It's really important that I remind you. No one means no one. There we go. Now that is as profound as it gets. No one means no one. Now you say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I have read, I have read things like signs of the times. I've heard of wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and plagues and pestilence. And Yes, you have. And those are absolutely legitimate. But here's what I want you to understand. Jesus, Jesus calls them. These are the beginning of birth pains or labor pains. What is he saying? He is saying that they point to an event. That's the idea. Now, if I, you know, I went through labor a lot, three times with my, with my wife. Come on, catch the irony of that. I, I didn't. Okay? I can only imagine. Okay? I can't, but here's what I do know. And Jesus is saying, it points to an event. So he's saying it's the beginning of birth thing. What does that mean? It could be three labor, it could be three contractions in its birth, or it could be 300. There's no way to know. There's only one person who knows, and that's God himself. But these point to an event. They are reminders that this is coming. It's not something that is going to not happen. It will happen. And Jesus would say throughout the Throughout John, excuse me, Mark chapter 13, and, I, and in your notes, on the back of your notes, there's always a discuss and reflect. I put in a whole bunch of passages for you to read about the second coming of Christ and the teaching that Jesus gives. One of them is Mark chapter 13, 1 through 37. And what I want you to do, when you take some time and read it, I want you to just underline how many times Jesus said something like this. Be watchful, be alert, be on guard. In other words, he's saying be aware of what's going on around us. Mark 13, 37 is the way that chapter ends. It says, what I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Be aware. That's what we're called to do. We are to live patiently, but it is to be an active patience. An active patience. So I want to encourage you three different ways to be actively patient as we wait for the coming of the Lord. You see, that's what Paul said to Titus, while we wait for the blessed hope. It is that wait that we need to understand how we live a life that is victorious and thriving in the between now and when Jesus comes. And one of those ways is to be patient. The first way we do so is to be hopeful. Is to be hopeful. It is not called the great escape. It is called the blessed hope when Jesus comes. For you and I as followers of Jesus Christ, it is the hope of the church that Jesus will return again. It is our hope. We need to be hopeful, hopeful. And I titled the message, kind of a silly title, I get it, Escapology, but I think some of us, that's exactly what our theology is, is to escape all of the difficulty. That's what the coming of the Lord is. Nothing could be further from the truth. It is the hope of the church. John chapter 14, 
In verse number one, Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled. I love that. Trust in God, trust in me. There are many rooms in my Father's house. I would not tell you this if it were not true. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And after I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me so that you may be where I am. Hallelujah. We are not to be troubled with the coming of the Lord. It is not an escape, but it is the hope of the church of Jesus Christ. I love this song. I sang it as a kid. And some of you will recognize it. If you don't recognize it, Google it and listen to it because it's worth listening to. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see when I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. And he takes me by the hand and he leads me and he leads me and he leads me through the promised land. What a day. What a day that will be. It is the hope of the church. The second is that we're to be mindful. We're to be mindful. And it's interesting how Paul continues this, this teaching, or rather this, this encouragement to Titus. He says these words. He says, Jesus, who gave himself to redeem us. The blessed hope Jesus, who gave himself to redeem us. Paul mentions, he, he mentions this in relationship to the glorious appearing of Christ. The glorious appearing of Christ. All that Jesus has done for us never Never, we're to be mindful, never forget the sacrifice of Christ for our sin that prepares the way for us to move from this life to the next life. We are to be mindful of the sacrifice that Jesus has made for us. Titus, that, that same letter that Paul wrote to Titus, he continues on in chapter 3. He says, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Listen to this. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, and listen to this, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. While we wait, we are to be mindful of what Jesus has done for us and rejoice that we belong to him. And lastly, we are to be purposeful. Purposeful. I love the way that Paul ends it. He says, eager to do good. You see, this active patience is not just sitting back and waiting for the return of Christ. And I think it was 18, 1843 when a group of individuals called the Millerites were expecting the coming of the Lord. They had predicted a particular day. So what they did is they dressed themselves in white and they got up on the roofs and they waited for Jesus to return. I'm sorry, that's not what we are to do. We are to be eager to do good. We are to continue to live our life of faith. We are to continue to share with one more about the goodness of Christ and the good news of Jesus. There are different ways that we can do that. Listen to what Peter said once again. He said, 2 Peter 3, so then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, there's the hope. Since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. That's the character. And then he says, bear in mind that our Lord's patience in coming, essentially, means salvation. Every day that Jesus delays his return, it means one more can find the hope of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Our active patience along with Jesus' patience, allows us to share with one more rather than just looking for an escape. When, uh, for our fifth anniversary, 
this was a bunch of years ago. Marcy and I were living in Ohio at the time. We decided to take a five-day, four-night cruise to the Bahamas. And we invited Marcy's sister and her husband to join us. And so we went to Florida in the middle of February. And I want to tell you something. That is the best thing. That's one of the best things you can do in the Midwest. It's February. Get out of the freezing Midwest thing and go south where it's warm. And we did. It was wonderful. Had a great time. We did a lot of things that we wouldn't have, you know, we hadn't done. We were able to go to Disney World while we were in Florida. We, as we took this cruise, we learned how to snorkel for the first time. It's the first time we, we ever snorkeled. And while we were in orientation, the, the guides were telling us, now these are the kind of fish you're going to see, et cetera. This is where you go, how you do it, and so forth and so on. I said, oh, great. So we got in the water, and we saw all kinds of wonderful fish. It was really, it was a, it was a ton of fun. Now, there was an encounter that Marcy and I had that I will never forget. And one of the reasons I'll never forget it is because she won't let me forget it. And uh, I told her, I warned her that I was going to tell this story, but here we go. Because I want to tell you something. Um, this whole encounter was, I, well, it's another chapter in a book that I'm writing entitled, Not My Finest Hour. And this is chapter like, who knows how many of that. This is a not my finest hour occurrence. So we're in the middle of this wonderful lagoon and we're snorkeling and I see about an eight foot long, 500 pound barracuda. It wasn't that big, but I'm pretty confident it was that big. And the first thing that I did was get away from that as fast as my little fins would take me. Without, what, without one consideration of my wife who is snorkeling next to me. Now, I want to tell you, it has been a lot of years since that particular occasion. And that comes up often. What about that? You forgot, you didn't, you left me there. And I said, yeah, I did, but you know something, he would have only taken a small bite. That doesn't do anything for the whole situation. It doesn't make things better. You know, now in my defense, I don't have any defense. It was terrible. I don't know what I was thinking. Immaturity, being uncomfortable in the water, all of the above. I don't know all it was. But here's what troubles me. I look back at that. I said, how in the world could I get to such a place that I didn't warn my wife, the person I love the most, about something that was so challenging or could have been? I just escaped. I just got away from there. What was the right response? was to do everything I could to warn her, protect her, and rescue her from an impending challenge, difficulty, life-changing experience. I want to tell you something. There is a life-changing, challenging experience that's coming upon this world. Let us not view things as an escape to just protect and preserve ourselves. But let us be willing in being eager to do good, that we would warn others. And if you don't like the word warn, encourage others to come to faith in Christ, to, to share with one more, to invite one more, to pray with one more. This, we've had this receptacle of names here. These are people that we as a church have said we're praying for and believing for. They would come to faith in Christ. Let us take the opportunities that God presents to us. And may we do everything 
we can to warn those that we know and love that the things that we are experiencing today, they're not always going to be the same. They're coming to a climax. Jesus is coming again. And Jesus is coming soon. It's not if, it's when. How do we live a life that thrives and is victorious between now and then? Live with gratitude. Live with character. Live with patience. And this final thought, the soon coming of Christ is not an escape from the reality of today, but it is the hope of everyone who knows Christ as Lord.